0: Episode 8, Using Precedents, Law and Practice. The 4 Legal English podcast is now in session. On today's docket, Using Precedents, Law and Practice. In this episode, we discuss using precedents. We'll explain what is a precedent, how precedents are used in court, and go through an example of this. Welcome to the Four Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. In this episode of the podcast, we'll discuss using precedents. I'm Timothy Barrett, your host. I was a practicing attorney in the United States, working in civil and criminal law, and now I teach law in Tbilisi, Georgia. If you're looking to improve your legal English, please enjoy today's episode. Also, consider giving us five stars and a great review. It would really help us grow the podcast. Be sure to check out our website. Four is in the number four, legalenglish.com. legalenglish.com. This is episode eight of the Four Legal English podcast. On the docket today, we'll discuss using precedence. So let's start with what do we mean by precedent? In everyday English, a precedent is something that we've done before and we're probably going to do again. So we use precedents a lot throughout our lives. For example, maybe you have some friends that invite you to dinner every once in a while. First time you went there, you brought a bottle of wine. And then you went there maybe a few weeks later, and you also brought a bottle of wine. The third time you're invited, you're probably also going to bring a bottle of wine. After a few of these visits, maybe they're going to expect that you bring a bottle of wine. It doesn't mean that you have to bring it. It doesn't mean that they're going to be upset if you don't or if you bring flowers or chocolate or or something else. But if you've done it a few times, then there'll be an expectation that you'll do it again. Maybe you have that expectation and maybe they have that expectation. Maybe when you go to one restaurant, you always eat this certain meal, this certain dish. So if you've done it a few times, then you're probably going to continue. It doesn't mean you have to continue. It's not mandatory or obligatory. But other people might expect it, and you probably expect it. So that's the precedent. Now, in legal English context, when we mean precedent, we mean an appellate court decision that can be used to help future cases, to help decide future cases. Precedents can be persuasive or binding. If a precedent is persuasive, then it may persuade the court. It may persuade the judge. The judge may look at it and decide this was logically decided, and so the judge is going to follow that precedent, do the same analysis, or adopt the same rule that that court adopted. Now, the court doesn't have to do that. In fact, I practiced in front of one judge, and opposing counsel gave some persuasive precedent. He gave citations to cases outside of our state, outside of Florida. And the judge responded by informing that, that attorney that he was a Florida judge, He applies Florida law, that if he has Florida cases, he would consider it. But he wasn't interested in out-of-state cases. He wasn't interested in persuasive precedent. Now, that is not the, the common opinion for most judges, but it was for this judge. Besides persuasive, precedent can be binding. So to keep on that same example, if that opposing counsel had a case from the Florida Supreme Court, then that would be a binding decision on a Florida trial court judge. At that point, the judge would have no decision. He would have no leeway. He has to apply that Florida Supreme Court decision. It is binding. That is the law. He can't ignore the law. But opposing counsel gave a case from the California Supreme Court, that precedent would be persuasive. The trial judge could adopt it. He could think that it's convincing or that's a good argument or that's a good legal logic behind it. But the judge could reject it just as easily. It's up to the judge to decide if it's persuasive precedent. Now, related to this is the idea of stare decisis. This is a Latin term that means let the decision stand. If the court has already made a decision in the past, then we should continue under that ruling. We shouldn't change our rulings every other day. That would kind of lead to chaos and a lack of predictability in the law. So when we talk about binding precedent, according to stare decisis, that precedent must be followed. And there's even an argument within the U.S. Supreme Court. Do they have to follow their precedent? Is an earlier decision from the Supreme Court binding on the current Supreme Court when they handle a new case? And there are some justices that, that kind of argue that, nope, it's stare decisis, we should follow what we decided before. And there are some justices, probably a minority, that argue the opposite, that, you know, hey, we're the top court, if we got it wrong The last time, whether it was two years ago or 200 years ago, then we're the only ones that can correct it. We're the highest court, the court of last resort. So we have an obligation, if we made a mistake in the past, to correct it with this case. That doesn't mean that stare decisis should be ignored, or every time we we look at it, we're going to decide it fresh. But the argument is, if the earlier case was decided wrongly, then we're certainly free to change that decision, reverse that decision. Now, what happens if you're a lawyer, you're advocating for a client, but maybe the precedent is against you? Maybe it's persuasive precedent, maybe it's binding precedent, but it is against you. What can you do? One option is to distinguish that precedent, to point out that that precedent is a little bit different than our case. And that difference is important, and it's so important that it might change the outcome. For example, when that earlier case was decided, it was about an event that happened in the summertime. But our case happened in the wintertime. The first case, it was very warm out. The second case, it was very cold out. And maybe that makes a difference. You know, whatever the case is about, that fact that is different between the two cases is important. It's relevant. And so the original court might have decided differently if that fact had been different. So we distinguish that case. Yes, that is the precedent, but our case is different. Therefore, we don't have to apply the precedent. The precedent doesn't really apply to our case because of these differences. Now, when we're using precedents, probably the first thing that we do is figure out what is the rule from the precedent, from that earlier court decision, what is the rule that we can pull out of that case? Some things are complicated, and we don't want to oversimplify them because something gets lost when that happens. But what is the rule? Can we explain the rule from that case, from that decision? Can we explain it in one or two sentences? Another thing that we have to think about is the important facts of that case. Because what change of facts would change that decision? In order to answer that question, we have to understand what were the facts of the original case. Now, sometimes the court, when it makes a decision, it, it says explicitly, if instead of A, this case was B, then we would decide differently. So it's very clear what facts would change, how would it change the outcome? But in some cases, it's not so clear. In some cases, the, the court will specifically say, hey, this is about a fact pattern of A. We are not sure about a fact pattern of B. That's not before us, so we're not going to decide on that. You know, if, if that comes up to us, we'll decide then, but we're not going to rule on that now. It would be premature to, to rule on that today. But of course, probably most of the time, it's somewhere in between. It's not clear that it, it does apply or doesn't apply. And so that's where the lawyers can argue how it's distinguishable. And certainly sometimes judges will argue that, that as well. If they don't want to apply the precedent, they might decide, well, it's distinguishable. There's something different about the present case, the instant case, that is different from the original case, the precedent. And that distinction is important. If you're enjoying today's episode, please do me a favor and subscribe. If you could rate us five stars and leave a great review, that would really help us out. We are a new podcast, so we're trying to attract more people to listen to the podcast. If you enjoy this, please give us a review. Also, consider sharing this with your friends or colleagues that would also enjoy this podcast. If you want to check out the show notes, please go to the website, 4legalenglish.com. 4 is in the number 4, legalenglish.com. This is Episode 8. Once there, you can also check out our blog articles and our available courses. If you're looking to improve your legal English, consider taking our free course, Introduction to Legal English. All you have to do is sign up and you'll get access to this free course. We'll put a link in the show notes. Please check it out. So let's look at at two cases and see how we might use precedent in applying these two cases. In both of these cases, a husband and wife made an agreement. And later in court, the judge needed to decide, is that agreement enforceable? Was it a valid contract? In one of the cases, the answer was yes. In the other, the answer was no. Both of these are English cases from the Court of Appeal of England and Wales. The first case is a 1919 case called Balfour versus Balfour. In this case, the husband and wife made an agreement. The husband would pay the wife a certain amount of money every month while they were apart. He was going back to Ceylon in modern-day Sri Lanka, and she was remaining in England. So while they were apart, he would give a specific amount of money for her monthly maintenance. Later, they decided that she wasn't going to return to Ceylon, and in fact, they were going to separate. So the question was, was this agreement binding? Was it a contract? The court in that case determined that the parties, the husband and wife, had no intention to form a legally binding contract. An intention is one of the four elements required to form a contract in common law. So if there was no intention, then there was no contract. Now, it wasn't that they didn't have an intention to make an agreement. They did. I mean, they made this agreement. But this was a domestic arrangement or a family agreement between husband and wife, between a family. And when they made the agreement, they did not intend to form a legally binding agreement, an agreement or a contract that could be enforced at law. The court pointed out that husband and wife might make many agreements with each other, and if every time one of them violated an agreement they went to court, then we need a lot more courts. So that was not a a workable solution. There must be something wrong with, with that idea. Now think about it. If we had a case, you represent a client, it could be the husband or the wife. They made an agreement with their spouse when they're still happily married. And then later they decide to separate, to end up in divorce. Is that agreement binding? Well, according to Balfour versus Balfour? No. If we follow that precedent, that agreement that they made was not binding because they were still happily married at that point. Now let's look at the, a second precedent Merit versus Merit. This is a 1970 case, from, again, from the Court of Appeal of England and Wales. In this case, the husband and wife split, the husband left and moved in with his mistress. And subsequent to that, husband and wife met and made an agreement. This agreement included the husband paying a certain amount of money to the wife. The wife would pay off the remainder of the mortgage on their house. And after the house was paid off, the husband would agree to sign over the house to the wife. So the wife would keep the house. Later, the husband reneged on this deal. So they went to court and the question was, was this agreement binding? Was it a contract? So this is somewhat similar to the Balfour case. You have a husband and wife making an agreement and then later going to court, was that agreement enforceable at law? But the court distinguished the Balfour case. Now they said Balfour is still good law, there's nothing wrong with that case, but that case was different from our case than the Merritt case. And because of that, we're going to make a different decision, we're having a different outcome. And in merit, the court looked at, were the husband and wife amicable when they made the agreement? In Balfour, they were still happily married. Now, maybe, the, I'm not saying that there might not have been some problems with the marriage, but they had no intention of separating, of not being together as a married couple anymore. They were only going to be apart because of her health, because of his work, those types of things. Not that they decided not to be husband and wife anymore but that's quite different in merit in merit. They've already made the decision that they are separating, that they're no longer going to be husband and wife. The husband left the family home. He was living with his mistress, another woman. They were not trying to get back together. In fact, they were trying to split. They were making arrangements on how they're going to split up. And so because of that difference, In merit, they came to the opposite conclusion. In merit, when they made that agreement, they had already decided to separate and eventually divorce. So the agreement that they made was binding. That the husband and wife, when they made that agreement, intended to form a legally binding agreement. This was not just a domestic arrangement that a husband and wife make. This was two people who are going to divorce made in contemplation of that divorce, of that separation. So the court ruled that it was legally binding, legally enforceable. <music> now, looking at the Balfour case, the outcome of merit was probably foreseeable. You could see that in Balfour, it was very important that they had not decided to divorce or, or legally separate they still intended to be husband and wife. And so you, you could probably foresee that if that had been different, if they agreed to separate, no longer to live as husband and wife, in 1919 they might not have been able to get a divorce or it might have been very difficult, very time-consuming to get one. But if they had made that decision after they decided to live apart, then that it probably would be a binding agreement. But it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, whereas Merit and Merit it kind of continued that line of precedence. So to understand how an agreement between husband and wife might be considered binding or not binding, to get the full picture, you probably need to read Balfour versus Balfour and Merritt versus Merritt and see how they are similar, but also to see how they are distinguishable, how you can make them distinct, make the facts of each case distinct, and why those fa- facts are important. common law court systems, we use precedents very frequently. They're often used in argument or in legal briefs, and the courts will take those into consideration when making their judgments. In civil law, this is much less common. However, it is still a part of most legal systems. If we look at the European Court of Human Rights, the Court of Justice of the European Union, or other international tribunals like the World Trade Organization's appellate body, they all have precedent cases that they will refer to. Now, the court on paper may be free to reject those precedents. And so if you want to argue, are they, are they binding precedent or persuasive precedent, you, know, you can certainly make some arguments. But most of these courts will adopt the rules from the precedent from the earlier case or explain why not. You know, what has changed? They might distinguish that case that, you know, there's something different, so we're going to come up with a new rule that applies to this type of case. Or they might explain why that old rule no longer works, so we're going to make a new rule. But usually they can't ignore that precedent. So it's important to understand how precedents work and how you can use them, how you can use them in your argument to to make your case a stronger case, even if the precedent is against you. You want to be able to explain how the court can still Adopt your argument if the precedent is against you. And you can do that by distinguishing. So let's look at some of the legal terms that we talked about in this episode. Precedent. Persuasive. Binding. Distinguished. Distinguishable. Stare decisis. Intention. Domestic arrangement or family agreement. Are there other terms that we raised but we didn't explain? If so, comment in the show notes, and we'll try to explain those words or terms as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. Give us five stars and a great review. We'd really appreciate it. Check out our website. Four is in the number four, LegalEnglish, no spaces or dashes, dot com. You can check out our blog articles, available courses, and the show notes. This is episode eight. In the show notes, you can also comment. It's a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. The For Legal English podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next Docket Call.